Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today's show is produced by Aaron Babcock of Ohio University. Today we are visiting with Bethel Saylor, a professor of history at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. We are talking uh, specifically about her new book entitled The Settler's Empire, Colonialism and State Formation in America's Old Northwest. This book is published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome to the show, Bethel. Thank you, John, and thank you for inviting me. It's our pleasure to have you. We've been wanting to talk to you for quite a while about your new book, since it's about Wisconsin. Um, I should tell our listeners that the book was first published in 2015, so it has been making the rounds, and I've been seeing uh, very nice reviews of it in all the usual places. Good to hear. So, Bethel, tell us, uh, first of all, how did you choose Wisconsin as your focus of study? Well, it's funny. I uh, didn't choose Wisconsin. I almost uh, feel Wisconsin chose me. Uh, I was looking for a, uh, a topic uh, to do a, uh, a research seminar paper, and I knew I wanted to do something about um, Indian history and, um, and gender and I came across a very strange captivity narrative. It was strange because it was um, a captivity narrative that seemed to be um, the reverse of what you usually expect of a captivity narrative. It's the story of a young boy who goes missing, um, the family, the Partridge family, which I never cease to enjoy that. Um, <laughs> they, they, um, they're convinced that their young son, while they were out um, uh tapping maples for maple sugar, they're convinced that he's been abducted by nearby Menominees. Um, and this is up in um, northern Wisconsin around uh, the Green Bay um, Oshkosh area. And uh, um, about um, uh, two years later, um, a extra child um, is noticed by the aunt of, of the missing boy um, who uh, she and her husband had moved up to, um, a, uh, to a, an area in um, uh, a little above her, um, her brother in Wapaka. And um, so she alerts her brother and his siblings, and they basically grab this kid um, and insist that he is their son, even though he, um, the Menominee mother insisted her son, and there's a trial. Um, and uh, what really struck me, a couple things. One, the fact that this all took place in 1854, um, and yet no one could quite figure out the race of this boy, and a lot of white people agreed that he was a Menominee boy, as many as white thought he was Casper Partridge, the missing child. And so the result of the um, trial was that the judge uh, favored the Menominees. And um, the Partridges seized the child and uh, absconded with him, helped by their neighbors, and ran off um, with the kids. So it was a kind of double captivity narrative. Mm -hmm. And um, But most of all, it was just the fact that 
this was going on in 1854, and I thought, well, the state was founded in 1848, and as far as my sense of, you know, sort of frontier history, um, I didn't expect this kind of conf racial confusion and this this rich array of people, um, uh, settlers, missionaries, Indian agent, the Indian agent who um, really was working on behalf of the Menominees himself was of mixed race, and his father actually was a very famous fur trader in Green Bay, um, a Jewish fur trader, um, and you had Catholic missionaries testifying and Protestant missionaries testifying and all kinds of mixed race peoples um, and people's uh, interpreters. And so just as just incredibly um, uh, complex and, and almost a, a kind of uh, replete um, picture of what you think a, a, a very unsettled area might look like. And yet, it was post-statehood. And so that started me out on thinking why this was the case and, and, and the investment of these people in the race of the boy, uh, especially the Partridges. It's really important to them that this was a white child. So how did the judge decide who was the winner of this case, in this case, the Menominee? Um, so I have to say, I, um, all of the evidence and the facts were on the side of the Menominees and the Menominee mother. Um, she could she brought out people who remembered her the birth of the child. Her sister testified, um, and mind you, they're all doing this with um, interpreters. They're swearing on their own God, so they had to have this stipulation that when they test, you know, um, the different the Christian Indians and the pagans, as they were called, the not the traditional Indians, they swore in different ways. Um, uh, they tested, Her sister testified to breastfeeding the boy um, when her um, her sister, the mother, Nakum is her name, um, was off hunting. Um, her, um, Nakum's father testified to uh, different moments with the boy and his naming and his naming ceremony. Um, a Catholic missionary testified to knowing them, uh, a trader who um, was excoriated by the Partridges, and in fact became, I think, the biggest villain because he married a Menominee woman and had mixed-race children. So this, this, this threat of racial impurity um, sort of was uh, an undercurrent of the story. Um, he testified to knowing the kid, the mother, the husband of the mother. Um, so there was just a, a, a lot of testimony um, recognizing the boy. On the Partridge's side were all kinds of um, sort of uh, a customary wisdom, right, that the, the kid um, acted in a white way or um, uh, the mother uh, dirtied him up and painted him as an Indian. Um, and notice it's the mother, because very often in this area, it was Native women and European-born men who were um, were the family unit or the couple. So it's, it's not a coincidence that this Indian woman becomes sort of the, really, she's the one on trial for the Partridges and the white family, the new settler families. 
Um, so they really had not a lot on their side other than they they swore that he looked like um, the Partridges. One of the Partridge brothers was a phrenologist, and he felt Casper's head. Um, there was a, uh, um, a couple meetings of, uh, um, in which they, you know, sort of threatened the judge, um, uh, militia type meetings. Um, so it was all, it was all about threats and innuendo and, um, no facts, just all kind of intuition or wish, wishing, hmm. uh, that this was the boy. That this was their son. So, Bethel, you uh, grew up in Concord, Massachusetts, and went to college right. at Bryn Mawr, but yeah. then you went to University of Wisconsin-Madison for your Ph.D. Was yes. it, were you in Madison when you ran across this story of this Menominee Indian boy? Yes, I found it in the um, extraordinary collections of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, um, uh, one of the very best libraries I've ever, um, it's ever been my pleasure to uh, do research in. And um, yeah, so this, this uh, captivity narrative was there. And, um, and then I just started extending that research. I looked at the um, court records and the uh, um, baptism records and the marriage records finding all of this uh, mixed marriage um, and uh, Catholic baptisms of what seemed like Native children or mixed-race children. Um, I went on and found um, uh, uh, the, uh, the remarkable fact that the very first federal action in this area of Wisconsin, when it was still part of Michigan, was to round up all of the uh, elites of Green Bay and Prairie du Chien, who were largely French habitants um, and mostly mixed-race uh, fur traders, uh, and, and force them to legally marry their Métis um, or Indian wives. And the fact that that was the very first thing that established the presence of the federal government I thought was really, really interesting. And that that set me on this question of state formation and what state formation meant and what went into creating a state. And, and then I thought, well, Wisconsin is the last territory in the Northwest, and, and it belonged to every single one of the other territories. So it came under the jurisdiction and the laws of all those other territories. So it allowed me to look at the entire Northwest Territory, which itself was the very first experiment in creating states wholesale, so new republics. You know, what the, um, the early uh, Americans really wanted was to get away from that, um, the, the um, um, British colonial, um, uh, their, the traces of British colonialism, and really create republics republics anew, and where they could do that was in these new western territories. Um, so that's what set me on this, this, um, uh, this path to look at um, what became the Settlers' Empire. It kept growing and growing and growing. Um, um, prior, why it, yeah. 
Well, prior to your time in Madison, I was just going to say another element of your story and the story of this book is the time you spent in New Zealand and right. uh, becoming familiar with the idea of settler colonialism. Can you tell us how right. that shaped the book? Sure. Um, I, uh, well, I was intrigued first with the how um, similar it seemed that New Zealand, which um, was settled in the 19th, largely in the 19th century, mostly there was some um, settlement in the 18th century, but, but primarily in the 19th century, how it still, there were so many parallels, I thought, between New Zealand and the United States in the way that they were settled, and um, not least that they both um, originated in um, uh, the immigration of largely British settlers um, under um, uh, uh, British imperial authority coming over to these these new worlds um, and establishing settlements. And, you know, um, but yet, while New Zealand was keenly aware of that, I would say a, 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 what I call in the book a double identity uh, of, um, of settlers, of being both colonizers and colonized, um, so they're both the colonizers, but they're under the British. Um, so in that sense, they're colonial. So I, I guess colonials and colonizers. Um, and wanting to belong to the area that they, um, that the people who then, the subsequent um, uh, progeny of those settlers were native to that area. Uh, and yet they identified as um British um, or Anglo or European descent. So it's a strange, it was a strange struggle for, um, in New Zealand they're called Pakia, which is a Maori word and there's a lot of debate about what that means and whether it's in fact a pejorative. Um, but in New Zealand they actually use the um, Maori words for set, for the settlers, so it's Pakias and Maoris. And I thought, well, why don't we think in those terms? I mean, why... Um, why haven't we ever thought about that peculiarity of being um, awkwardly native small end and what that meant um, and why it was so important, uh, why we uh, wanted our independence, what that meant, um, the sort of double genealogies that Americans have of being new world and old world. Um, so... Um, I thought it was really, really interesting, that. And then also, uh, a lot of my book looks at what I call the treaty polity. And I got that idea from New Zealand because a major treaty signed between the Maoris and uh, um, the Pakias, um, and really uh, the, um, the British um, colonial officials, established their, um, their political relations and established each party um, in in a new relationship. Um, and that seemed to me, that struck me as very, very similar to the treaties that the United States signed with Indian people and Indian nations and created Indian nations in the same way that the, the Treaty of Waitangi, it's called, created the Maoris who are um, a, a whole uh, a number of clans um, that they centralized. 
uh, around dealing with the British. So in some ways they modeled, they created a new model in order to deal with the British uh, colonials and the British colonial authority. And I thought Native people did that too. And it, it started this whole um, uh, colonial governance that I think, to be honest, still exists. Um, between Indian nations and the United States government. Sort of a shadow government within what I saw as the territorial government um, that the federal um, state created to administer the movement of uh, the creation of new territories and their movement toward uh, statehood. You are listening to Heartland History. Today we are visiting with Bethel Saylor, a professor of history at Haverford College. In particular, we are talking about her recent book, The Settler's Empire, Colonialism and State Formation in America's Old Northwest, published in 2015 by University of Pennsylvania Press. Bethel, one of the things that's developed uh, in the American history profession in the last few years is a focus on the idea of settler colonialism. And this is a term that really was not used very frequently a decade ago, but it is really burst upon... It's really burst upon the scene. Can you uh, tell us, uh, tell the uninitiated, uh, where that term came from and what exactly it means? So there's debate. I'll tell you. Um, uh, I'll tell you some of the what I think is the basic definition of it, and then I'll tell you where people divide. Um, so settler colonialism is. Uh, as I said, it's a, it's a distinct kind of colonialism. In my book, um, I talk about it as a sort of um, uh, you know first world and third world nations. Well, settler empires or settler nations are second world, um, and it describes uh, a the some would say the invasion of. Um, some would say the immigration of uh, European descent settlers um, under an imperial authority who set up settlements. And as um, many uh, now argue, part of that colonialism, um, inherent to that colonialism, is the replacement of indigenous peoples with um, the um, settler society. So, um, it essentially inherent to it is the removal and and or vanishment of um, indigenous peoples. Uh, I, there's a lot of debate about that. I find that part of that definition too simple, and also one that um, turns indigenous people into um, just victims, which I actually don't think that's true, and I also don't think that settlers are either that cohesive or that um, hyper-rational and predetermined, their their, um, success predetermined. My book is all about the struggles and the sort of step-by-step and very localized negotiation of um, establishing territories and how yeah, honestly, Americans did not know what they were doing, and understandably so. They were inventing something entirely new. Um, 
uh, in the sense that they were inventing both a republic, a federal republic, and a domestic empire. Um, and so uh, they didn't have the answers by, by any means. Um, so that's, that's where I think some people are more... Uh, determined um, or, or see it as more of a, um, a um, very uh, violent and dark story. It's, it's certainly violent, certainly dark, but it's not predetermined. Um, so I, I think that's the interesting part of it. And I also think that Native people are everywhere. I mean, one of the things that I have a map in my book, which I love, um, it's the map of um, uh, Wisconsin in 1849 after it had become a state. And a good, um, I don't know, maybe uh, um, a third to um, a, a bit more of it is all Indian country. And even the parts that are that are sort of, um, if you look, have those squares of um, flat maps. They still, uh, native people are still there. Native people are everywhere. And so to sort of see that um, invasion as a permanent replacement or vanishment, I think, um, does a disservice because uh, native people are still defining um, those areas. So in terms of this concept of settler colonialism, it might be useful or it might clarify the situation a bit more if perhaps you could tell us what kind of colonialism is non-settler colonialism so we can make a distinction. Well, um, okay, so I'm going to make two, two, um, give you two different examples. One would be the way that we in the United States and earlier American historiography have talked about sort of uh, Americans coming over. And I think that has been prefaced by a kind of exceptionalism. So we haven't been very comparative in the way we've looked at how um, Americans settled the United States. Was that comparative to Latin America, to um, these uh, settler, uh, uh, other settler colonies, Australia, New Zealand, Ulster, Israel, um, South Africa. Um, so in thinking about the exceptionalism, we focused on a kind of pioneer story that had no, um, no antecedents and no comparison. And so that's where I think we missed settler colonialism. Um, we've since become much more interested in comparative history and sort of thinking about global context and uh, uh, transatlantic views. And as a consequence, I think we've really seen um, that the United States isn't all that exceptional. Each, I think colonialism itself is local, so um, each place has, has distinctive stories and regions have distinctive stories even then, but um, we aren't exceptional in that sense. Um, but the other kinds of colonialism would be, for instance, the French um, uh, sent a lot of, you know, they sent traders, they sent some um, people to settle, but largely not. Um, they weren't that interested in establishing settlements and um, farming and new 
provinces. They were more interested in looking for resources, raw resources that they could turn, um, return to their the metropole, um, and use these places as markets as well. So there wasn't as much emphasis for a lot of um, European empires to establish settlements. Even the English, I mean, if you compare the English, um, the way the English uh, colonized India and the way they colonized what they would think of as the New World, um, it's very different. Um, India is was originally colonized by a company. It was privately, um, with private investment, and it was very much about um, resources, a lot of different kinds of, you know, fabric and spices and all kinds of goods that they could um, find and and transport and sell the manufactured goods within markets in India. So that's a different kind of colonialism to a settler colonialism. Does that make sense? Yes. So Bethel, um, is there a is there a historian or a school of thought? that first started popularizing or using the term settler colonialism as a way to distinguish what happened in the Midwest from, say, what happened in Latin America or India or some of these other places? Um, um, hmm. uh, I think that there have been some really wonderful books um, that have come out on last uh decade or so um, that have raised these issues. Um, um, some of them have just been compared, comparative. Um, the first the one, one of the ones I'm thinking of actually is, um, uh, I think the first people to really um, do some really terrific work on um, American uh, settler colonialism in the Northwest um, Eric Kendricker, I think, um, did a wonderful comparative book in which he looked at um, uh, French, English, and, um, and then American um, settlement and the, how different that was. I think Richard White's, um, that's called Elusive Empires. He doesn't use the word settler colonialism, and neither does Richard White. Richard White's book, A Middle Ground, came out in 1990. Hendricker's book, I'm not sure, I can't remember when it came out, but probably sometime in the mid-90s. Um, Andrew Caton also, I think, um, and Peter Onuf uh, did some wonderful work. Again, not necessarily using the term, but implying um, that there was something different in uh, the British and subsequent American um, settlement of... Um, of uh, this area, this these New World areas, both the Caribbean um, and what became the United States. Um, then um, after that, um, I'm trying to think of this one book. Um, there's a book on that, that compares Australia and the United States and legal sovereignty, um, but it's written by um, notably a an Australian. Uh, who uh, did, I think she did her PhD in Australia, but she did, um, but it was a, tran it was a comparative 
um, examination on it, uh, of Ohio. And then um, of late, I think um, it's hard to kind of get away from settler colonialism, as you mentioned. I, I, I'm trying to think if um, trying to think of something other than those. I think those works that I mentioned certainly um, recognized um, the phenomenon of settler colonialism. If they didn't use the name. I've been talking about settler colonialism for a long time, so I'm trying to remember when it, um, I'm not really sure when it sort of uh, took on, but there have been a number number of books now. Um, um, William Hickston, I think, wrote a book, American Settler Colonialism. Some of the books, I'm, though, I must confess, I'm not, um, I'm not all that fond of, oh, sorry, it's Walter Hickson. Um, I'm not all that fond of when they create this kind of, uh, um, what feels like an uh, inevitability and a, a sort of um, uh, uh, teleology in which, you know, Indians are just um, screwed <laughs> from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And it just gives no... Um, there's no kind of um, nuance or recognition that either Native people um, were fully involved and, and diverse in their strategies for dealing with American colonialism, that American colonialism is different from other kinds of colonialism, um, and that Americans themselves were diverse and not um, didn't have all the answers. This is a great topic for the hive mind of social media, and we hope someone will weigh in on uh, where they think this term, settler colonialism, first emerged, because it really has uh, become very commonly used in the last few years in conferences. And uh, Yeah, absolutely. There's a, um, there's a journal of settler colonialism, um, and uh, there's a number of uh, collections that explore. Um, Trevor Bernard, I think, uh, edited a collection recently that has a, a, a very large number of essays that look at it. Um, so there's, yeah, there's just um, uh, a lot of good work on there. I do think, though, honestly, um, we should give a shout out to the Australians and the uh, um, Australians and New Zealand scholars um, for really um, bringing this word and this concept um, elsewhere. Because I really think um, the first um, pieces I read about settler colonialism came out of Australia. After, but again, I don't. I'm sorry. After your recent book on Wisconsin and the Old Northwest Bethel, um, are you going to continue on researching the Midwest, or do you have other topics in mind? Well, I'm. Um, I will. Oh, I think the question of state formation. I'm. I'm really. My heart is in the early republic, and when I say that, I mean from the revolution through the 1820s. Um, so I always am, I'm, I think I, I, I will be doing, continuing to do battle or interrogating the, um, the way that 
early Americans tried to navigate and figure out how to set up um, the nation state, the United States, um, at a moment when they had um, uh, no money, no <laughs> very hardly anything in the way of an army, no navy, um, and uh, a lot of disparate states that they had to keep together in uh, federation. So it's a pretty daunting task. So I'm always going to be looking at, I think, nation state formation. Um, right now I'm, I'm thinking about, um, and the other thing is I can't get away, I think, from the West. And I just want to give a plug out to the Western History Association because they gave my book um, the best first book prize in Western history, um, which I just thought was so cool that they gave a prize to the Old Northwest, uh, to a book about the Old Northwest, um, and recognized that as Western history, because I think um, the United States West is so is makes a very interesting contrast to the West. So right now I'm looking at U.S. relations with North Africa in the late 18th century, and at that time, both the West in the sense of European nations and the East in the sense of North Africa, Islamic North Africa, um, were um, attacking the United States, who, who were identifying as a new West in all kinds of ways. And I, I think they drew a lot of their sense of what it meant to be a new West, and both in terms of civilization, if you will, um, and a modern republic and all that meant, but also because they identified as Native American small men. Um, and um, what's really interesting to me, so I'm never going to get away from the West, because even when they're looking at um, and dealing with North Africans, they're thinking about how these people, these North Islamic North Africans, are different from Native people, and the North Africans are very disappointed to discover these pasty Englishmen who don't at all um, uh, resemble the Indian people that their encyclopedias and their atlases have as the indigenous inhabitants of North America. So those, all of those quandaries I think I'll continue to look at. I'm, I am um, moving away from the Northwest per se, but not from the West uh, in, for this project. Um, and, um, but it's, it, it, uh, at the same time, I should say that, uh, I, um, uh, one of the, um, um, series that was interested in, in publishing this book was a series on, uh, the Atlantic world. So the Northwest itself is, has, I think, come into its own is not just, you know, uh, a region, but something that really does have a transatlantic um, importance. So I thought that was really cool. That's something that is so um, uh, uh, continentally bound um, could fit into an Atlantic um, series. You have been listening to Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. Today, we were visiting with Bethel Saylor, a professor of history at Haverford College in Pennsylvania. She is the author of the 2015 book, The Settler's Empire, Colonialism and State Formation in America's Old Northwest. It was published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Our show today was produced by Aaron Babcock. 
Thank you again, Bethel, for coming on and joining us today. Well, thank you, John. It was a genuine pleasure. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.